So in our Old Testament reading, it begins with Moses taking a bunch of blood and splashing it on the people. It's disgusting. Um, I, sometimes it's helpful to like read yourself into a story, like what does it feel like for you to be standing there? And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, great, sanitizer's not going to be invented for another 3,500 years? Um, now I just feel gross. We don't have time to get into what's going on there, but um, suffice it to say it has to do with cleansing, the opposite of what we would associate with. Uh, because you can't just enter into the presence of God. The presence of God is dangerous. It's terrifying, really, especially if you as a human being are in some way tainted. And spoiler alert, you are. In which case, the presence of God is terrifying. It's dangerous. It's not something you play around with. Like the old scene from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, when the, they open the Ark of the Covenant and then the angel of God or whatever melts the faces off of a bunch of Nazis. Like, that's exaggeration a little bit, not by much. But then, uh, after the people are cleansed, Moses, he talks to the, the, the elders, they kind of come up for a little bit, and then he says, stay here, and then he goes up with uh, some of his buddies, and then God's presence comes down on the mountain. Now, this is after Moses has done the thing that he is most famous for. As God's first great prophet, he led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt after a, a showdown with Yilbrun, I mean Pharaoh, and, and through the sea and over to Mount Sinai, where God not only rescues his people, but he establishes Israel as his chosen people. But he's not done yet. If he's going to establish them as his people, he is also going to say there are some boundaries here. This is what it means to be my people. And that includes things like the commandments. And so God's presence comes in a cloud, a terrifying cloud, and rests on the top of Mount Sinai for six days. And on the seventh day, Moses is able to enter. And that's when he gives him the tablets and, and the commandments. And everyone else is extremely nervous about this, and they should be. Uh, a few verses later in that same chapter, when Moses leaves, he is shining. His face, his skin is, is bright and shiny to the point that it makes people uncomfortable. Back where I used to live in Orange County in California, people pay a lot of money for that. But... God just did it for Moses. And then you have the entirety of the history of Israel playing out. Um, about either 1,250 or 1,500 years, scholars aren't really quite sure, uh, later, Jesus walks up a mountain with his disciples, three of them, Peter, James, and John, and I don't know if you notice this, but Matthew begins that section by saying, after six days. 
Now, I'm going to confess, that confused me until quite literally about 10 minutes before the service started. <laughs> in which case, I was just reviewing things. Oh, it's right in front of me. God's presence comes down on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. And for six days, it's there. And then Moses enters into it on the seventh day. After six days, Jesus and his disciples go up to the mountain. What's after six days? It's the seventh day. And, and this is typical of Matthew as he's telling the story of Jesus. There's a lot of like him throwing out little lines like that and imagine him going, eh? In which case, we're supposed to make that connection before the transfiguration. If you go up onto a mountain and on the, on the seventh day, something is going to happen with the presence of God. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus is transfigured. And no, that's not an invented spell in the world of Harry Potter. We came up with it first. It's our word. And there's Jesus, there's Moses, and there's Elijah. And they all shine like... They, they shine like the sun. They, they're... they're um, the, the glory of God is radiating off of them. Now, we could talk for quite some time about all of the little details, but we don't have lots of time. Um, but suffice it to say that at the very least, Matthew is, is, is pointing us to some connections here. First off, Jesus is associated with, with Moses, who was the great, first great prophet and really the greatest of, of the prophets until now, um, because Jesus is about to lead a new exodus, and it's not clear to anybody except for Jesus yet what that means. And then Elijah is there, because from the prophet Malachi, we know that Elijah is supposed to come before Messiah. Now, a few verses later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, are going to ask about that. Isn't Elijah supposed to come? And, and Jesus is going to go, he already did. That was, that was what John the Baptist was doing. But you can imagine in the background, Peter, James, and John going, whoa, wait, we just saw Elijah. Who is this guy? But we're not going to talk, we're not going to focus on that today. So the glory shines from all three of them. And Peter, he says, Lord, I'm going to make three shelters. And it's not 100% clear to me what is actually going on there. Uh, but, but Peter wants to stay in that moment, apparently. Um, and he, he wants to, like, commemorate it or, or maybe even house the presence of God. Because the word for, for tent or shelter there is uh, also the word that, that can be used for tabernacle, like a holy place, a place to house divine presence. And so I think he's, he's tapping into this tension that occurs all throughout the Bible. Now, the, the presence of God is dangerous, it is wild, it's compassionate, but also unpredictable. The presence of God can be found in the tabernacle, the, the great tabernacle of Moses, 
and then eventually the great temple built by Solomon, and then theoretically, but it's not quite the same, the second temple that was built after exile. The presence of God can be found there. But then also, you have the voice of the prophets going, really? Really? The all-powerful, all-creator of the universe can be contained in a thing that a bunch of people built that's made out of wood? You really want to go there? There's this constant question about where God is and what that means. And I think Peter is tapping into that. And then right as Peter says that, boom, a big voice comes down and it's the voice of God. He's like, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it says that the disciples are terrified. That is the appropriate response. Like, I would freak out too. And so then they go down off the mountain, and Jesus gives us the point of all of this. He says to his disciples, don't tell anyone about this moment until I have been raised from the dead, which probably led to some questions about raised from the dead, what? What? The Messiah isn't going to be raised from the dead. The Messiah is here to kill the enemies of God. But nevertheless, they probably did follow Jesus' orders on that. And it isn't until after Jesus is raised from the dead that, evidently, um, stories like this start to come out. And that raises some questions. Why? So up until this point, this is Matthew 17, um, Jesus has gone around teaching, he's gone around performing miracles and announcing that the kingdom of God is here. None of those things in and of themselves are unique. There were some things that Jesus taught that, um, that we can't find any like antecedent, like there, where, where Jesus is saying something essentially new, like he's teaching something that hasn't been taught before, there are, there are some instances of that. There are plenty of other instances where Jesus is teaching and he's actually clarifying conversations and debates that were going on at his time that we know about. There are times when Jesus is teaching he's just, where he's just explaining the scriptures. He's not extremely unique, at least, in those teaching. Uh, Jesus is a miracle worker. He performs miracles. He casts out demons. There, it was rare, but there are other Jewish leaders that could do that. A few. It was not common. Uh, ancient peoples were not ex- like any more gullible than we are today. Um, but there were a few my favorite being uh, Rabbi uh, Honi, the circle drawer, who in a time of drought drew a circle around himself and said, Lord, I am not going to move from this circle until it rains. We need, desperately need the rain. And God is supposed to have then, or God is said to have then provided rain. Um, so Jesus as a miracle worker is not unique, but it's rare. And he does more miracles than everybody else. That's for sure. 
Jesus is not the first to announce the kingdom of God. He is the first to associate that with peace instead of war. So that, that part's kind of unique. It isn't until he's raised from the dead that all bets are off. And if you read the New Testament through that lens, things start to make a lot more sense. That these are the writings of people who are trying to come to terms with the fact that there was somebody that they knew, that they watched die, whom God raised from the dead and transformed in that process. And as a result, something has changed fundamentally about what it means to be human. And so when you look at maybe the lens of the transfiguration, this moment when Jesus is like caught up into the clouds, kind of like in our picture behind me, um, suddenly that might make a little more sense. Because if Jesus were just radiating the glory of God, well, he would just be like Moses. If Jesus were uh, announcing that God was doing something and preparing the way and so on and so forth, well, he's just like Elijah. So I think Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anyone until I've been raised from the dead, because until he's been raised from the dead, Jesus would just sound like another prophet rather than the one through whom a new era is ushered. And as a result, this highlights for us like the core fundamental truth and teaching about what it means to follow Jesus. We view everything through the lens of resurrection. We view our lives through the lens of resurrection. That not only did God finally answer and in some ways alter the question of where is God, where is God's presence, the answer being in Jesus, but he also made a way for that very presence of God to be present within us. A huge amount of the writings of the Apostle Paul, somebody who wrote the most number of books, not the most words, but the most number of books in the New Testament, it is to understand it that, that Paul is making sense of the fact that God's presence is now in his people. In other words, he is the very presence of God is within you. That face-melting presence of God from the Old Testament that's terrifying and wild and comforting and compassionate and scary and confusing now resides in you. And it came to reside in you when you were baptized into Jesus' death and his resurrection. So what then does resurrection mean? Because it's easy to talk about like really, really dense theology and interesting and neat history. And there's this guy, Jesus, and he kind of ushered in this new era, which is cool, I guess. But man, I got to go to work tomorrow. 
and work as hard. Well, maybe not tomorrow because tomorrow's a holiday, but um, Tuesday. And, and you may be saying, well, that's great. I got to go to work and work is just soul-sucking. Not, I'm not saying that my work is soul-sucking. I actually enjoy what I do, just for what it's worth. Um, or you might be thinking, that, that's great, but I, I can't make rent. That's great, but I'm sick, and I'm probably going to be sick for a long time. That's great, but my family is crumbling. That's great, but I'm afraid about what's happening around me in my community. I don't like the way that all of these wars and all of this violence is present in the world. We have lots of reasons to say to this announcement of resurrection, that's great, but. So what does it mean? At the very least, resurrection means that God gets the last word. Who here, don't raise your hand, who here, if you're hypothetically having an argument with your spouse or somebody close to you, I've heard that happens at least. Um, so I'm, I'm just speaking hypothetically. I don't have any real world experience with that. But who here likes to be the person that gets the last word? I like words. I use them a lot. I like to get the last one. Why? Why do you like to have the last word? It's because you, you, get to put the, you get to put the period at the end of the sentence. If you, if you can determine how that conversation, how that argument, the, the arc of what is just happening can really be shaped by how it comes to a close. A good story, good movies, good book is really dependent on how it ends, right? Is this a happy ending? Is this a sad ending? Confusing ending? If you can shape the way it ends, you have enormous amounts of power. Resurrection is the power of God to define your story. Because at the very least, it defines how that story ends. Things may be a mess now, but I know that there will be a day when God raises me from the dead for the renewal and restoration of all things. Speaking personally, there will be a day when God raises me from the dead when my back doesn't hurt and the, they can't find the leukemia mutation in my blood. There will be a day when God raises you from the dead and the pain from a soul-sucking job or a family or a relationship that's falling apart is washed away and redeemed. God redefines your story that way. But it, it's not just about the end. 
Because as we, as, as we engage in the way of Jesus and as we see uh, really even just the way the New Testament plays out, but then also just like looking at the lives of people, we start seeing through the lens of resurrection that God brings that new life all the time. If you find yourself struggling, in whatever way makes sense to you, place a bookmark there. Just, just make a note. And six months, a year, three years, whatever, however long it takes, when you finally made your way out of that moment, look back and ask yourself, how did God redeem that? How, how does the resurrection... How did the resurrection weave its way through and in this story, infecting it with this life-giving power? Because I promise you, it does. So Transfiguration Sunday isn't just about Jesus apparently being neat and shiny with Moses and Elijah uh, and then his disciples are wondering, what is going on here? But it's about the most fundamental truth of what it means to follow Jesus, that we are people of resurrection and restoration where God gets the last word. And that last word is redemption, restoration, and resurrection. Amen. I invite you to rise as you are able.